So last night, <coughs> let's see if my voice cooperates. <coughs> last night, Nathan um, covered a lot of ground and one of the concepts um, he touched on was dukkha. I'd like to begin the talk this evening with just going a little bit more into um, this very core aspect of the teachings um, and then follow that through, hopefully to also uh, illuminate some ways that we can work with, with dukkha. So, I personally love that description of, of dukkha as that ill fit, that, that bad fit of the axle and the hub of the wheel, wheel um, that creates a kind of um, bumpy ride of life. And in, in the Buddha's teachings, this is very, very primary, yeah. so that first noble truth, you know, that there is dukkha in the human condition. Yeah. So through the human condition, through the fact that we are human, then we experience dukkha, which somehow both brings it much closer, I feel like, makes it much more intimate, and at the same time also maybe a little bit less personal or less about me. Yeah, that's kind of just something to to keep in mind. So this word dukkha, the reason we keep using the Pali is because, and it's spelled D-U-K-K-H-A, in case you can't quite kind of grasp the the tones when we say it. Um, So dukkha is a whole spectrum of the human experience. Yeah, a, whole, a whole spectrum covers a whole spectrum from very um, intense suffering yeah, to really mild discomfort. Yeah, covers the whole range of very intense suffering that we can know as human beings to the very, very mild discomforts that, um, that arise in our experience. So, you know, we can say from experiences of loss, of acute pain, physical or emotional, to just the day-to-day dissatisfaction of things not going our way. Yeah, the niggles and disturbances. Not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. And so, when there's an attempt to translate dukkha, you know, there's a lot of different <coughs> words that are used, most commonly suffering, also stress, distress, um, discomfort, disease, unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. And my personal favorite, which I've come across fairly recently from Thich Nhat Hanh, dukkha as ill-being. Ill-being, and for me that's like, yeah, once again, 
Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, he's nailed it. So ill-being as the opposite of well-being, you know, I think that really can also help us to, to feel into it and that, how that sense of ill-being can cover that whole spectrum from the intense to the, to the mild. And this teaching of Dukkha really um, invites us to, to look with open eyes at our experience and yeah, to see how uh, so much of our experience, so much of the happenings in our lives are not in our control. Yeah. It really comes down to that very simple, very profound aspect, you know, the health of our body the events in our lives, yeah, not in our control. Just remembering that at dinner, one of the friends here has got his daughter visiting um, with his granddaughters, and one of the granddaughters is 14 months old, so she's a baby, and he was, had her in his arms, and he was pointing at me, and saying to her, Aji, Aji, which means grandmother. <laughs> it's the first time I've been called that in my life. <laughs> and it was really interesting to, to feel the reaction. There was dukkha, you know, of like, oh my goodness, you know, aging. You know? And of course, from his side, it's an act of love and respect, right? <laughs> but oh, here's the dukkha. Yeah, it's not in our control. Yeah age. So, so many elements of our experience, so many aspects of our experience are not in our control. And yet, what the invitation is with this understanding of dukkha, this teaching of dukkha, um, is what happens, things are not in our control, but what happens when we bring attentiveness, when we bring interest, when we bring care into how we relate to what happens to us, yeah, or what is happening to the body, what is happening um, through events in our lives. Yeah, what happens when we bring attentiveness, care, and interest? And this is where freedom can be found, yeah, in the relationship, in the relationship to experience. Yeah, so we can't stop, you know, use that. I can't stop the aging process. <laughs> yeah. Can't stop it. Can't stop how other people may perceive me. Yeah. I, I can't stop. But when I see the dukkha, I can I can see the relationship. And I can bring attention and interest and care to that. And this is such a um, radical teaching because it's not a habit. Yeah, it's not a habit. Yeah, what we habitually do is um, to look for our happiness, to look for satisfaction in things. Yeah, in states of mind. Yeah, in objects, in self-view. Yeah, something we look for it outside of ourselves. Yeah, and we look for it, we look for lasting happiness in what is conditioned and impermanent and changing. 
Yeah, this is our habit, and it's not about giving ourselves a bad, a hard time. That this is our habit. It's about acknowledging that this is our habit. Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah, we look for it in the things and not in the relationship. And when we look for it in things, yeah, when we look for happiness, we look for well-being in what is changing and conditioned, this brings dukkha. Yeah, this is the root of dukkha. Expecting something, somebody, this body, this mind, this meal, <laughs> whatever it is, again, from the small to the very... Um, essence yeah of what we care about but expecting that to bring us lasting satisfaction and happiness so it leads to dukkha and it leads to dukkha because it keeps us caught in cycles of um, contraction and reactivity yeah i want that you know that is going to give me lasting satisfaction and when that doesn't manifest in the way that I want it to, or if that appears and then changes, yeah, then I react. Yeah, and that reactivity then adds more layers of, of dukkha, of distress and ill-being. And the Buddha had a, a wonderful um, simile to, to illustrate this. And... It's, it's, it's really interesting how many of his similes are using things which were very common in his time and are less common in our time, but they're still very, very clear. And this is one of them. So this simile uses the image of arrows, um, you know, which we don't kind of interact with arrows so much <laughs> anymore. And yet somehow something in us can really understand. So... The simile is um, of a person being shot by an arrow. Yeah, a person being shot by an arrow. And this arrow is, you know, the arrow of the unexpected, incontrollable happenings of our lives. Particularly in the simile, the Buddha speaks about the arrow being physical pain, but we, we can take poetic license and extend it. Um, but particularly the physical pain uh, is what he's referring to. And he says, an uninstructed person, a person that does not practice and does not have access to wisdom, they will then feel that pain, the physical pain of the arrow, yeah, penetrating the body. And then they will add to that by... I can't remember exactly the words, it's quite dramatic, um, but by basically making a big deal out of it. Yeah. And we can imagine, if we imagine ourselves in that situation, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think, why me? You know? And I don't want this, and I don't want, and I, you know, why, why was I standing in that place? Uh, why was that person shooting in this direction? You know, just that second arrow that we add on to that experience. Yeah. So the first arrow, the un, um, unavoidable, uncontrollable 
things that can happen. The first arrow, sorry. And the second arrow, the way we contract and react and push away experience. Yeah, what we do in response to that as a reaction, which is the pushing away, the blame. And all that and all of that manifests as contraction. Yeah, all of that manifests as reactivity. And what the Buddha was was pointing out with the simile, there's a few things. One is that most of what we uh, refer to as dukkha, most of that is in the second arrow. Yeah. So that first arrow, you know, and we can think about, you know, if we don't want to get caught up in arrows, just the experience of stubbing our toe. Yeah. And we think what happens when we do that. And you remember the last time you stubbed your toe? What happens? <gasps> yeah? And then, you know, why did I do that? You know? So that's, those are the second arrows. And most of, most of the dukkha is in this second layer of arrows. And certainly the dukkha that we can work with is primarily in these second arrows. So I can't even remember if I just said it or not, but I'll repeat it And even if I did say it. Um, so one way of seeing these two arrows is the unavoidable pain and then the workable pain of life. Yeah, Two types of pain, the unavoidable, and not, what's not in our control, and then what we can work with. So that's one, um, for me, really profound teaching from this, from this simile. Um, and another is that the simile, what it points out to us is that anything that happens, yeah, dukkha or not, is not just an event, is not just um, one isolated thing that happens, but it's part of a process. Yeah, it's part of a chain of things, chain of events. So I stub my toe, and then the body contracts and reacts, and then the mind contracts and reacts. Yeah, and then the mind contracts and reacts on top of that, and on top of that, and on top of that. Yeah. So anything that happens is not just an isolated event, but is actually part of a process. And when it comes to dukkha, this process is a kind of building up of layers of reactivity and escalation and contraction. So the dukkha is not fixed in a specific object or happening, but it is uh, compounded and co-created by various conditions that come together. And one of them is our response or our way of relating. Yeah. And that's where there's possibility for transformation. So how we relate, yeah, the relationship can really have an impact on our experience.
So Nathan was giving an example of, um, of a physical pain yesterday and how, you know, we can relate to it. We usually relate to it as something fixed, yeah? This is the, um, this is this knee pain, you know, that I know. That's kind of, it becomes very solid, very fixed. But what happens when we start bringing interest to that? That was the example he was giving yesterday. And we actually start to see that thing that we're calling pain as sensation or sensations. Yeah. Sometimes that can really make a difference. Yeah, that can really make a difference. If we go into the detail of something that we're labeling as a thing. We go into the detail. Similarly to that, another kind of way of um, using example of pain to to see this process uh, comes from pain research um, that I read about a while ago. Um, where they um, explored the experience of pain with people who had chronic, a particular type of chronic pain. I don't remember what it was. And in that case, they found out that 70% of the pain that people were experiencing was to do with contraction in the body around the pain. So there was the actual initial um, pain in the body. And then the body, and we can feel it in our own body quite a lot, the body contracts around pain yeah, as if it wants to kind of hold it in place, keep it isolated. Yeah, so the body contracts around the pain. Then that contraction in itself is unpleasant. So there's more contraction around that and more contraction around that and more contraction around that. And then there's the mental contraction on top of that that comes in. You know, the pushing away, the rejection, um, then the layers of blame and self-judgment that maybe come up. So 70% of pain, in, the, in that particular type of pain, 70% of the pain that people were experiencing uh, was to do with um, these second hours, the contraction around the pain, the response to the pain. And seeing that, of course, um, they could work with people and a lot of people could learn to relax these layers of contraction and then reduce the pain they were experiencing. So the response, whether in the body or in the mind, plays a part in the experience. Yeah, and I'm using pain as an example here. Yeah, using it as an example. It's not just about pain. It's across the board in our experience. So this brings us back to something we've been touching on, um, which is that dukkha and all experience, yeah, all experience is fabricated, which means that it is made up of various conditions that come together, including the way we are relating to the experience. 
Yeah, so various countless conditions and causes that are coming together, including our relationship. And so how we relate or um, the way we look, the way we relate to our experience is part of what shapes it. It impacts the experience. And we can begin to see that when we pay attention to our experience. So the same um, sensation in the body is experienced differently if I relate to it with aversion or if I relate to it with interest or if I relate to it with metta. Yeah, the same sensation in the body. It doesn't, when I say that, it doesn't mean that one of these will kind of make me pain-free. This is really important. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, if I relate with interest or with metta, then the pain will go away. It'd be lovely if it would. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that the way I relate impacts the experience in some way. Yeah, and this is something to really, you know, we'll be exploring it more over the days, but just to put it out there, that the way I relate to things impacts how they unfold. So this relating to is a doorway. Yeah, it's a really, really wonderful doorway for us, a doorway um, to awakening, a doorway to freedom. And it's very much what we're practicing here. So rather than firing more arrows yeah, at ourselves, which is our habit, again, it's our habit, it's our tendency, it's our conditioning as humans, rather than firing more arrows, we have other possibilities. Yeah, we have other options. One of them is um, cultivating our capacity, developing the capacity to shift attention intentionally from where it habitually goes. Okay, and that's really what we're doing here, just to tell you. Yeah. We have the capacity to shift attention intentionally yeah, from where it habitually gets directed to, and that is a capacity that we are cultivating through the practices that we're doing. And when we do that, that increases a sense of grounding and of spaciousness, which then um, decreases the reactivity. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but Nathan was talking about that yesterday. More spaciousness, less reactivity, yeah, generally. More spaciousness, we're less caught up, we're less um, limited or kind of hemmed in and therefore less reactive and less contracted. And so more spaciousness, more grounding, less reactivity and contraction, and more possibility and choice. Yeah, more possibility and choice. So that's one, pos- one option that we have, or one thing that we're cultivating here. Instead of you know, f- firing more arrows, we can see, okay, can I 
use whatever is arising as an opportunity to practice this, intentionally shifting the attention from where it habitually goes to somewhere that feels more resourcing, more beneficial. That's one possibility. Another possibility is to investigate our experience in more detail. Yeah, so to investigate, to bring more investigation, looking into our experience, and particularly looking in the, at the way reactivity builds up and leads to escalation. Does this make sense to people? Yeah. So particularly interested in that, you know, I said everything, things are a process. That's one really important insight to remember. And then we can look at that process in more detail. Yeah. See, how does this build up? Yeah. How does this build up? How does that become a big deal? So I want to look, explore more this um, process of investigating our experience um, in more detail. And, and that process of looking at the reactivity building up and understanding that uh, more. And I'm, I'm going to use as an example the don't scratch the itch meditation from yesterday. I'm not going to let you forget that one. I'm going to keep coming. So if we break down that process of an itch or a, a physical discomfort that's very, very mild, you know, really, really mild, really insignificant, so the first thing is there's sensation, yeah? There's sensation, which we can call that the contact, yeah? The sensation and the perception of sensation, the contact with the senses. And in the case of an itch or a mildly uncomfortable sensation in the body, that contact will be unpleasant, yeah? This is unpleasant. This itch, this tickle, this slight tension somewhere, it's unpleasant. Here's where the arrows come in. (laughs) So there's an itch and it's unpleasant. And then the unpleasant grows with the reactivity. Unpleasant, don't want it, don't like it. Yeah? Don't want it, don't like it, can't stand it need to get rid of it yeah and before we know it all of this with an itch will be most of the time completely under the radar yeah completely in the unconscious before we know it we've scratched right or we've done that or we've moved is that is this is this example clear so far yeah of this building up it's a building up So it goes from the contact, unpleasant, don't want this, don't like it, got to get rid of it, and then the action. Yeah, Then the action will follow. And it's the same with any um, physical pain or a sticky thought or a pleasant experience as well. Yeah, like a pleasant fantasy. It will be the same process of building up, yeah, building up. 
So the pleasant will lead to trying to get something, yeah, like leaning into the getting, leaning into the future. And if we really kind of feel into our experience with, with knowing these things, we can feel how as that process unfolds, there's a sense of more solidity yeah, building up with the itch or with the fantasy, more solidity building up, um, and it becomes a much bigger deal for us. Yeah, it kind of really builds up, escalates. And if we are tuning into the energy body, we can really feel that in the energy body. Yeah, in the energy body, it will feel uh, more dense, more contracted, more narrow. And sometimes um, in the physical body as well, we can really feel it. Yeah. That sense of narrowing down and contraction and denseness. So this process of building up of reactivity is leads both to suffering but also triggers our actions. And this is really important to see. Yeah, triggers our actions and our reactions, um, including our thoughts, our speech, our choices, our views. Yeah, they're all coming now under this um, label of actions. Yeah, our ideas about things. I always get to kind of what I think is the middle of the talk and then I think, oh, I'm doing really well. You know, I'm not going to, it's not going to be this, you know, really long talk and I'll need to rush at the end. And I'm just, I don't know why I'm saying this, just to have a bit of comic um, release because, you know, I also know that then at some point in about 20 minutes, I'll suddenly feel an intense sense of uh, rush. But uh, I'll let you know how it unfolds. But yeah, just looked at it. Oh, half an hour, I'm doing good. Let's see. So not only an escalation, this process of escalation. Remember the contact, unpleasant or pleasant, and then that building up. I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I need to get rid of, I need to get hold of. Yeah, all of that process um, is the build up to suffering, but it also is what triggers our actions in the world. And this is really important. And one key aspect of this chain of reactivity and escalation is very subtle, very unconscious, but um, a real key yeah, to unlocking this chain and um, giving us a handhold to, to not be um, stuck on this treadmill, yeah, to not be the prisoner of that chain of habit and conditioning. And that is that subtle categorization of things into pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just said it again, but I'll say it again. There's contact and then immediately there's that categorization of pleasant or unpleasant or not very strongly one or the other, which means kind of 
Uh, we, we usually call that neutral. And this categorization goes on all the time. Yeah, with everything. It goes on all the time with everything. Whatever contact there is between our senses, yeah, capacity to sense things, and the world, whatever contact there is, there will be this categorization, which in Pali is called Vedana. And it is unconscious until we bring intentional attention to it. Okay? So we're not aware of it at all until we bring intentional attention to it. So one way of, um, of referring to this Vedana is as a process of unconscious preference. You know, this kind of we lean towards here or we lean towards that. Nathan sometimes says the nice, not nice. Yeah. So instead of the pleasant, unpleasant, the nice, not nice. Yeah. Like we lean towards that. You know, we have these, these conditioned preferences that are going on um, all the time in an unconscious way. And this unconscious preference is a building block is a building block in that process that leads to dukkha and that triggers our action. Another way or the kind of official name for this um, thing I was calling the chain of reactivity is dependent origination. Yeah, so it's a, a, one of the key concepts in Dharma teachings um, but it actually can also, it's very, very profound and also very, very simple, which is kind of why I didn't call it that to begin with, even though I'm sure a lot of you recognized it. Yeah. It's also very, very simple. We can see it in our experience. So in this um, map of dependent origination, which is a map rather than the way things are, rather than something, you know, this is the reality. It's a map to see the unfolding of experience. There's the contact and then the Vedana. That's unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. And that is followed or that leads to the craving, the holding on to something or the pushing it away. And that brings a sense of identity and becoming, which then leads to dukkha. Yeah, to suffering. And I, I kind of get a sense, as soon as I say it like that, it feels abstract. Yeah? Feels abstract. So let's, let's use another um, example. So I'm sure you haven't had this experience in the last 48 hours, but other people tend to have it, which is, you know, sitting in meditation in the hall and um, wondering why the bell isn't ringing from the end of the sitting. Um, you know, like, what the hell is going on? Surely the person up here has fallen asleep and, um, you know, Bell should have rung a long time ago. So I want to look at that experience in, in, this, in this chain, through this lens of dependent origination. So there's something in our experience 
which um, creates a sense of restlessness, right? We want the bell to ring. Yeah, so maybe there's restlessness, maybe there's pain in the body. Yeah, something is going on. And that experience, say it's restlessness, has an unpleasant Vedana. Yeah, it is unpleasant. The restlessness is unpleasant. And so the response to that is aversion and pushing away. Yeah, don't want, pushing that away. That pushing away leads or feeds a sense of self, an identity. I cannot stand this. Yeah. This is intolerable. Yeah. Which fixates on the bell and the time. Yeah. Why doesn't the bell ring already? Yeah. Fixates on that. And that, yeah, that is where the dukkha really builds up. Does that make sense to people? Can you see that? Yeah, that's where the Buddha, the the dukkha, you know, we can see it shooting up the scale, yeah? From restlessness to, you know, that that real, when is that bell going to ring? You know, we all know that experience. Or we know other people that know that experience. (laughs) So is there a way out, you know? So we see that, yeah? We see, here's here's this, Build up, yeah. This dependent origination. But what what can we do? So when we become sensitive to Vedana, yeah, when we intentionally bring attention to it and we can see the unpleasant, we can see the pleasant, we can we become able to, to stay with that, yeah, to stay with that. Yeah, the unpleasantness of the experience or the pleasantness of the experience or the neutrality of the experience. And when we're able to stay with that, the, the build-up doesn't happen. Yeah, the escalation doesn't happen or doesn't happen as much. So it stops the process of escalation or slows it down and also really grounds us. Yeah, it's very, very grounding. So we can see that the restlessness has a Vedana. Yeah, if we go back to that bell example. We can see that that grasping for the bell to ring has a Vedana. Yeah, so wherever we are in that process, we can find the Vedana. We can see that any judgment that arises towards ourselves has a Vedana. Yeah. And we can stay, we can rest with that. We can rest with that. So we can see the Vedana as it arises and then have more possibilities of alignment and response. Yeah, it's just unpleasant. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a bigger deal. Just unpleasant. And even if it's just for a moment, yeah, that I can feel it's just unpleasant. Such a relief. Yeah, such a relief. With that build-up, with that... Um, kind of escalation of the dukkha and the sense of self and the sense of problematic. Yeah, there's so much contraction that builds up, so much intensity that builds up. And any moment of staying with the Vedana just grounds us and brings some ease.
So we can also use Vedana as a support when the escalation is already kind of, you know, we haven't caught it at the Vedana stage. <laughs> it's already kind of full-blown. And um, often the most common examples of that are more to do with the mental um, activity that we can see, you know. So maybe um, our leg has fallen asleep in the meditation. Yeah. And so that unpleasantness of the leg falling asleep um, and the, avert, the, the, the aversion to that then leads um, to a whole tangle of thoughts and emotions. Yeah. Why did I come here? Why didn't I go and do a retreat in a proper meditation center where there's comfortable cushions? You know, why didn't I do a yoga retreat before I came on this meditation retreat so my body would be more um, flexible and it wouldn't fall asleep when I'm sitting? You know, like all kinds of stuff that comes up. You know, the great damage I'm going to cause to my body because my leg is falling asleep, you know. you know, I talk to a lot of people, I hear these stories, I'm not just making them up. So, you know, and this happens, you know, this happens to all of us, yeah? It's called um, papancha in Pali, one of my favorite Pali words. This escalation, proliferation of thought, when we create a whole world, yeah? A whole world in the mind. Yeah? A whole world in the mind. So, you know, we're in that story. Yeah, we're in that story. And then the bell rings. And it's like a cartoon. You know, as if someone um, popped the balloon of the papancha and it all collapses. Yeah, it was all the build up in the mind. And when the bell rings, one thing that we might realize is that we've actually completely forgotten about that original leg falling asleep, you know. That hasn't been in our mind or our experience at all. We've been completely caught up in the stories, in the proliferation of the thoughts, in the drama, in the mind, yeah. So that happens to us, and we can use Vedana as a tool there too. Yeah, when we notice, oh, I'm caught up in a story, and sometimes that they have such a strong momentum that whatever we try, really difficult to get out of it. You know, oh, I'm thinking about that again. I should come back to the breath. Maybe a millisecond of breath, and then we're off again. Yeah, it's so sticky. It's so habitual. It's got such a momentum. Nathan sometimes calls it the papancha train. Like we get on it, and we just don't know how to get off. And it never stops until the bell rings. And even then, sometimes it doesn't. So one way that we can use is noticing the Vedana. Right then, what's the Vedana of the Papancha? What's the Vedana of the thought? What's the Vedana in the body? What's the Vedana of this breath? Yeah, And it can be... Um, like, for me, I always get this image of a get-out-of-jail card when you play Monopoly. It's like that, <laughs> like somebody handed you this magic thing. <sighs> Relief. Yeah, release. Coming out of that, um, that train. 
Yeah, getting out of that train, waking up from that train. So this papancha, you know, we always, I always joke about it, but it actually can cause us incredible levels of distress. Yeah, so much distress when it's going on. And can, as I said, can be really difficult to, to get out of. So any possibility that, any tool that we can apply is really, really valuable. So one way of stepping out is checking in with the Vedana, remembering what is the Vedana of this experience right now? And what happens when I turn towards it? What happens when I notice it? And with that sense of Vedana, the sense of contraction, yeah. There'll always be, when there's escalation, there'll be contraction in the body and the energy body. It's always a, um, an indication of reactivity. So we can also come back to that. That's another um, way out. We can notice the Vedana of the body or just notice the body experience. So I want to give um, another example of this process of dependent origination, this process of the build-up of experience and of particularly dukkha and of the possibilities we have to work with that and to uh, find freedom within that. And this is an example that I use a lot, so apologies to those of you who've heard it. Um, and it's an example from a Jesuit priest called uh, Gregory Boyle, who uh, has worked for several decades in very uh, poor neighborhoods of um, L.A. in the U.S. And this is from a time, I think it was in the 80s, when... Um, the, U, the U.S. government was changing some of the of the regulations uh, around immigration, and as a result, um, a lot of people, um, a lot of um, unregistered immigrants, uh, became homeless. They were afraid to live in a particular address, and so Gregory Boyle's church um, became a refuge for these people. So they had the women and children staying in the convent and the men were sleeping in the church at night and then going to work in the morning. And as a result of about 100 people sleeping in the church at night, um, the church started to have a very particular smell. And uh, the people coming to worship in the church on Sunday morning started to complain about the smell. And so, you know, he, Gregory Boyle, when he tells the story, he says, you know, they, they would really kind of do everything they can, could on Sunday morning to, to clean it and spray it. And, you know, but the smell wouldn't quite go away. And the congregation was getting more and more unsettled and uh, unhappy about the situation. So 
Gregory Boyle and the other priests decided to address it, address this issue in the, um, in the sermon, in the Mass on Sunday. And this is how he did it. I haven't got his book with me, so I'm telling the story from memory. So he, uh, he turns to the congregation on Sunday morning and he asks them, what does the church smell like? That's how he starts the sermon on Sunday morning. What does the church smell like? And he says suddenly everyone in the congregation is kind of looking down and not making eye contact and kind of looking very embarrassed. And he says to them again, what does the church smell like? You know, he keeps repeating the question. And finally, one old guy who um, doesn't really care what people think of him responds and says, it smells like feet. Church smells like feet. And Gregory Boyle says, great. Why does it smell like feet? And someone else in the congregation responds, because homeless people slept here in the night. And Gregory Boyle responds with another question and says, well, why do we let that happen? Why do we let that happen? And another person responds, because that is what Jesus would do. Yeah, because that is what Jesus would do. And so G. Gregory, he asks another question. He asks the congregation, well, what does the church smell like now? What does the church smell like now? And someone in the audience responds, it smells like commitment. Smells like commitment. And someone else stands up and shouts, it smells like roses. And at that point, the whole congregation starts laughing and is completely enlivened and alive, laughing, celebrating. Their commitment, yeah, their commitment to um, to compassion, yeah. their commitment to compassion, their commitment to Jesus, what Jesus symbolizes for them, yeah. which is why they come to church, right? It's why they come to church, and so I wanna, I I love this story, <laughs> and um, I want to, to kind of break it down without taking away the, the, the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the resonance that it has for us, but to break it down and look at it in the, um, through the lens that we've been using in the talk this evening, okay, of the dependent arising of things. So there is the contact, yeah, there's a smell, and the smell is unpleasant, Right? The Vedana of the smell is unpleasant. And there's a reactive habit of pushing away the unpleasant. We don't want this. Yeah? So people grumbling and saying, we don't want these people sleeping in our church because it smells bad. Yeah? And that seems like a fact yeah? to, to everyone. Yeah? That's a fact. It smells bad. And we don't want them here because it smells bad. 
And what, if we imagine ourselves in that situation, what does it, what does it feel like in the body? Yeah, what does that lead to? That's dukkha. Right? That's dukkha. It's dukkha for, for the person feeling it, and it's also dukkha for others. Right? It's also dukkha for others. It's the pushing away of another. So that's dukkha. And then what does Gregory Boyle do with that? What does he do? He changes the context of the smell. And through changing the context of the smell, he connects his congregation to a bigger picture. Connects them to, to a bigger aspect of themselves. And this manifests in an easing of contraction, right? They start laughing, yeah, and feeling love and compassion. So it manifests in an easing of the tension and contraction, relaxing and widening of the heart and the body, and an alignment with something that is much more important and profound. Then that sense of preference, I want this, I don't want this, I like this, I don't like this, this is nice or not nice, much more important and profound. And the really, um, the most amazing thing about it is that the change in context brings a change in body and mind experience. And that change in body and mind experience changes the perception of something like a smell. Yeah. It smells like feet. It smells like roses. That's a pretty radical change. Right? So that relaxing, the releasing of contraction, that change in the context affects the perception of the smell from something I don't like or want to something that I actually feel proud of. So this is the possibility that we have. Yeah, we can, we, this is what we're doing here. And this is what we can do more and more. Things are not fixed. This is the beauty of emptiness. This is the beauty of dependent origination. This is the beauty of fabrication. Things are not fixed. Yeah, there's strong habits. There's strong tendencies. There's strong patterns that we're dealing with. But we can wake up. We can change the context. We can um, dissolve that building up of reactivity. And at any moment that we do that, any moment that we do that is contributing to a change in the momentum of our lives. So if we asked any of those people in the church, hand on heart, is the smell unpleasant or pleasant? Yeah. What would they respond? There's a whole range of possibilities there. Yeah. The smell might still be unpleasant and at the same time smell of commitment and of roses. Yeah. Or it may be that it's pleasant. We don't know. 
what matters is that we can change our relationship, we can change the way we look at something. Yeah, and that affects the experience. Affects the experience. And the more we understand this process, the more freedom is available to us, the more possibilities we have. So Vedana is a real key in this process and we'll look at the practice of Vedana more tomorrow. Just remember, it's a real key to unlock these chains of reactivity and to find freedom. So our preferences are not real. They're not who we are. It's a habit to see them in that way, but it's just a habit. They're not real, and they're not who we are. So let's stop here for tonight and just take a moment of silence together to to close. So thank you for your listening and your presence. And we have just over 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.